Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart podcast. I am here with my colleague and good friend, Colin Parfit, who is the president of our Midstream organization. Colin will share a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on his career and how he leads others. Hello, I'm Colin Parfit, and I'm president of Midstream for Chevron. Midstream in Chevron is a collection of businesses. It's our trading business, our shipping business, our pipeline and power business, and our value chain business. And I've worked for the company for 28 years. I wanted to talk to you today about leading with empathy. I had an example earlier in my career where I came into the office on a Monday when our first daughter had been born at the weekend. She was premature and she was in the premature baby unit at the hospital. My supervisor at the time came over to me and basically said, Colin, what are you doing in the office? And if I think about it, there are a few things. I'll give you context. At the time, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet connectivity we had today. So working was going into the office. But essentially, I was on automatic and I really wasn't thinking about the broadness of things in my life. One of the things I've learned from that is building relationships and asking people how they are. It's very easy to say, how are you, and get a very quick response back. But to really take time to ask how people are doing, to sit down and understand what's going on in their lives. In recent times, I've had colleagues who have been dealing with either personal illness or their partners being ill. And they've generally appreciated when I've talked to them about how it's going. But what I recognize there is sometimes they'd actually rather not talk about it. Sometimes they've come into the office because they want to segment, they want to do work. They actually don't want to do that personal piece of their life. But it really helps. In a meeting, if you want to read the room, if you want to understand what's going on, it really helps to understand what's going on in people's lives. So if I think about the context here, early in the career, I made some mistakes because I was thinking a little bit narrowly, but my supervisor helped with self-awareness for me. And one of the things I think about leaders is leading with empathy and having that awareness for other people. Thank you for listening, and now on to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Long-time listeners will know that one of the primary recurring themes of our show, and my book actually, is that human beings aren't the purely rational creatures we've always believed ourselves to be. Instead, science now has proved that feelings and emotions influence our choices and decisions up to as much as 95% of the time, a truth that's hard to reconcile by people who pride themselves on being strictly disciplined rationalists. In the 1990s, Doctors Peter Salovey and John D. Mayer were the first scientists to explore and define the concept of emotional intelligence. They asserted that cognition and emotion are not only interrelated, but that emotions influence all of our decision-making, relationship building, and everyday behavior. And in 1995, Harvard-trained psychologist Daniel Goleman was arguably the first person to assert that emotions are active mental processes that can be managed, just as long as individuals develop the knowledge and skills to do so. In his groundbreaking 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ, he not only re-emphasized emotional intelligence connection to personal and professional success, he introduced a blend of emotion-related skills, workplace leaders, and everyone else, 
could use to elevate their interpersonal effectiveness. And ever since, of course, the ability to monitor one's own and other people's feelings and emotions, and to use that information to guide one's thinking and actions has proven to be an essential and highly prized leadership skill. As a generation has now passed since Emotional Intelligence was published, Daniel Goleman, along with Rutgers University psychology professor, Carrie Chernis, has just taken a fresh look at how emotional intelligence has evolved, and they have written the new book, Optimal, How to Sustain Personal and Organizational Excellence Every Day. And it is a profound honor for me to have Daniel Goleman join us on our podcast to discuss it. All of us have moments when we achieve peak performance. An athlete will play a perfect game or a team will come together to produce some really exceptional results. But Goldman says that for most people, most of us, moments like these are not the norm and too often are followed by hundreds of days of ordinary and unsatisfactory outcomes. So how do we sustain high performance while avoiding burnout and maintaining balance all at the same time? Goldman's book taps into how many people that he studied have built the inner architecture for repeatedly having good days, proving that emotional intelligence holds the key to everyone's best performance. If you'd like to enjoy far more optimal days in your life, not to mention your team's life, we're about to ask Daniel to share his most useful insights for you to use. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Daniel Goldman. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's as I told you before we started, it's a profound honor for me. So thank you for doing this. I know we're on the clock here, so I'm going to get right into it. When your book, Emotional Intelligence, came out about 25 years ago, and this came out in your new book, I'm a little bit surprised, or I was surprised to read this, that you were met with a lot of resistance and cynicism from business leaders and even academics. And a question was how important emotional intelligence really is to career and leadership success. And a generation later, is the resistance still present? And what have you learned since that's played a major role in strengthening your case? When I wrote Emotional Intelligence, the first book in 1995, it was a new concept. I didn't have the data I needed. I just had what we call converging data from different areas of psychology that suggested, hey, there's a way to be smart that's not just IQ-based, not just cognitive. It's about how you handle yourself and how you handle your relationships. In other words, being intelligent about emotion. Now, 25 years later, there's a mountain of data, which we've looked at in our book, Optimal. I wrote it with my friend, Kerry Chernus. He and I were co-directors of the Consortium for Research on emotional intelligence. And we knew we needed data because when I first wrote the book, there was huge skepticism. People said, you can't use the word emotion in business. That was then. Mm. Now it's taken for granted that emotional intelligence is at the heart of effective leadership. And data of all kinds now shows that, that the best leaders, the leaders we love, the leaders who inspire us, the leaders who can motivate us have emotional intelligence. And the other kind of leader, leaders who lack it, are the leaders we want to leave. Was it data that ended up persuading leaders across the world that you were right? What brought about the tipping point? I think that a lot of acceptance of the concept came from articles, a series of articles in the Harvard Business Review. I wrote an article, What Makes a Leader? 
which introduced the whole concept, became their most requested reprint ever. There was huge interest, it turned out, in the idea. People knew it intuitively, and now they're looking for language for this and for data that supported it. And in fact, we have that data now. I love the expression that they knew it intuitively. <laughs> you know, we know it in our hearts, but show me the data before I'm going to agree with you, right? Completely. And I understand that. Of course, you're running a business. You need to know that there's real evidence for this. I mean, that's a good point. Although, don't you think that our general tendency is to chest thump around our rational abilities and our I think, therefore I am mantra? Well, the way the mind works is we have an intuitive sense, a felt sense. You know, we feel it in our bodies. This seems right. And then we rationalize it. Then the mind comes in and says, yes, this is why it's right. And that may or may not help us. Depends on how right we are in that first intuition. The state-of-the-art measure of emotional intelligence competencies is called the Emotional and Social Competency Inventory. And in an analysis of 155,000 leaders who took the diagnostic, only 22% showed true strength in EI competencies as rated by those who work with them. Even worse, 4 in 10 proved to have nominal emotional intelligence strengths. And this came directly from your book. So early on in our conversation, what should we all impute from this? Well, Mark, you're giving the bad news. There's good news too. No, you got to hit the bad news first. We'll get to the good news. <laughs> yeah, the bad news is that there's a huge need for improvement in this area among leaders generally. The good news is it's learned and learnable. You can get better at any point in life if you have a well-designed learning system for it. Well, I want to push back, though, because your book has been out for over 25 years. And as you said a moment ago, it's been widely embraced. It's truth. And so how is it that only 22% of the people that took this diagnostic demonstrated true competency with emotional intelligence? Like, where's the gap? Sure, Mark. Think about the dynamics of an organization. Think about all the forces and pressures and reasons at play in promoting someone to a leadership position. Very, very often, for example, people become leaders because they're amazing individual contributors. And the problem there is that they think they're going to be a good leader by the way they were a good whatever it was before that. And often, you know, they're perfectionists. They see what was wrong with what they did, and they're working harder and harder to overcome that. That's how they became leaders or got promoted. But once they're promoted, they need a different mode of working. They need to inspire. They need to motivate. They can't just criticize people for how they are now. They need to have a growth mindset where they see that people can get better, and they can get better themselves. Well, I've actually written on this myself, this idea that individual contributors have a, a very different mindset, very different skill set in many cases, and their motivations to be a top salesperson, if you will, or even a top architect are very different from being a top manager of other human beings. So I'm kind of guessing where you're going to go with this, but I want to ask the question. Wouldn't it be smarter if we hired people who already demonstrated high levels of emotional intelligence and put them into management roles as opposed to trying to teach people who aren't naturally inclined to be that way? 
Of course it would be better, but hey, Mark, think about a <laughs> an interview where someone's trying to get a job. They're going to look their best. You're not going to be able to assess whether they have emotional intelligence three months down the road or three years down the road. You know, you're interviewing basically a facade. If you can get people who knew them well where they used to work to talk to you honestly and anonymously and tell you the truth about that person, then you have good data as a basis to hire someone on their emotional intelligence. Actually, we tend to say, you know, this is difficult. It's better once someone is in an organization and is qualified on other terms like business expertise and analytic skills and so on, qualified to be a leader, give them the chance to develop further on emotional intelligence. Okay. So we're going to give someone the chance. Your best advice on how to succeed with that chance is what I'm saying here is obviously we know about your first book. You've written several, but specifically Emotional Intelligence and now your new book, Optimal. Outside of reading those as guidance for being more effective with emotional intelligence, what are some practical things that people can do? What are some things that managers, new managers, even people that listening to this say, you know what, I probably fit into the smaller group of people who haven't really become excellent at emotional intelligence. What's the most optimal way of learning it? I can tell you what works because my colleague, Richard Boyatzis at Case Western Business School has been researching this for decades. He's got very strong evidence. He says, first, start with motivation. It's helpful, for example, to ask someone, where do you want to be in five years? What do you aspire for? Then look at your profile. You can get the, you mentioned the emotional and social competence inventory. That looks at 12 specific behaviors you find in outstanding leaders that are based on emotional intelligence. You know, emotional intelligence is self-awareness, self-management, empathy, social skill. Within each of those four domains, there are specific competencies you find in star performers, star leaders that you don't see in others. And the emotional and social competence inventory asks people who know you well and who you pick to rate you anonymously on those. You get a profile of your strengths and weaknesses, where your limits are, where you could grow further, then match that against where you want to go. That's where you're going to be most motivated to work. Then put that in terms of a specific behavioral sequence that you can keep practicing and getting better at like you would at your golf stroke. It might be listening better. This is like the common cold of management of leadership. You know, someone comes into you and they start saying what's on their mind and then you interrupt and take over the conversation. This becomes habitual because you're time pressured. You think you don't have the time, but actually you're not really listening well. So you listen to person out, then you say what you think they're trying to get at, and then you say what you want to say. That's a new behavioral sequence. And it's like learning a tennis stroke or golf stroke. At first it's awkward, but the more you practice, and this is another step, practice at every naturally occurring opportunity, the easier it gets. You might need support, you might need a coach, you might need a learning partner for days that you blew it. And you want to think, how could I prepare for the next round? But if you do these things, if you look at your motivation, if you pick what you want to get better at, if you find a concrete way to practice it and you keep practicing at every opportunity with support, Boyosis has found 
that kind of learning sticks years and years later as people are rated by others that they work with anonymously. That is solid evidence. I think what's going on is what we call neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. that the brain changes with repeated practice. That's why you get better at your golf stroke. That's why you get better at tennis. You keep practicing, and it's the same mode of learning when it comes to emotional intelligence. The wonderful analogy. Did you create that, the emotional and social competency inventory? I did it with Boyoxis, and you have to go through a corn ferry to get that. Okay. This may be a matter of informed conjecture on your part, but where specifically do you think most of us come up short with respect to our own emotional intelligence? And I'll add the caveat beyond not being effective listeners. I think it varies individually. That's asking a question like, if I went to a doctor, what would my uh, lipid profile and my cholesterol and every other marker of health be? It varies from person to person. Well, you have 155,000 people at least that have taken this diagnostic. So my sense of that is that you've been able to chunk down to say, hey, this is where people are really struggling. You're asking about common failings, I think. Common failings, yes. Yeah. So let's look at emotional intelligence first. There's self-awareness, self-management, empathy, and putting it all together to have effective relationships. So leadership looks on the outside like that fourth part, having effective relationships. But actually, that builds on each of the others. So some people lack self-awareness. They don't know what they're feeling or why they're feeling it or how it's biasing their thinking or perception or their impulse to act. And it turns out that if you're bad at that, you're likely to be poor across the board at emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. abilities. So that's one big sore point. Another is, do you flip out easily? Do you get angry? Do you get anxious? That's a marker of poor self-management. Are you pessimistic? Do you always criticize yourself? Do you criticize other people? Do you have a fixed mindset? This is how I am. This is how they are. Do you have a growth mindset? That's another marker. And some people, uh, you know, flunk that or are very good at it. It really depends. Do you keep your eye on your goal, your big goal, despite the crises of the day? And then empathy. There's three kinds of empathy. There's cognitive, knowing how the person thinks. Emotional, knowing what they feel, and also empathic concern, caring about them. If you want to be a leader that people love, you need to show that you care about them, about their best interests. You want to, for example, be a coach or a mentor so people feel loyal to you because you are concerned about where they're going. So that's totally independent. You could be good at self-management but poor at empathy. And then when it comes to relationship management, there are several different metrics. Are you able to inspire people? Can you motivate them? Can you persuade? Are you a good team player? Can you help resolve conflicts before they explode? So there are many, many different diagnostics. And I can't say that across the board, people are bad at this as leaders or that. It really is highly individual, Mark. I appreciate that. But I want to dig now into a couple of things you've said. One is you mentioned the importance of caring. And I've seen this as a theme throughout your work. And it's obviously a theme of our entire podcast. Why do we continue in business to see caring or conflate it somehow as managerial weakness? Like, why aren't we over that hurdle? Yeah, I think that's a damaging stereotype. It's a habitual way of thinking 
about what leadership looks like. You know, I've gone around the world asking people in different audiences, tell me one quality of a leader you loved and one quality of a leader you hated. And I make a list. And leaders people hate I just don't have emotional intelligence. They fail. They think, uh, you know, for example, they have to be tough, which means aloof or Uh horrible. And that doesn't create loyalty. It doesn't create trust. The leaders people love are leaders they can feel are trustworthy, who care about them. And, you know, this is a very important stereotype. I think it's left over maybe from old models of leadership. What do you think, Mark? I agree with you completely. I think it's traditional leadership theory. We're not supposed to get close to people. People are easily replaceable, pay them as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible. I mean, these are all the belief systems that we've had. It's just that you have been at this for so long and there's so much evidence around it. But just to spotlight, we're seeing organizations I'll even call it out, Google laying off 12,000 people in one day and doing it in one of the most inhumane ways where they did it in the middle of the night, they did it through email, and they didn't do it personally, and then they cut off everyone's technology. So people who had been there helping the organization become Google, many of these people have been there for many years, They weren't able to say goodbye to their team or to their friends and colleagues. And it was just such, uh, as I said before, a very low hurdle in terms of just caring about another human being. It was, we need to be efficient. We need to let people go. And this is the best way to do it. And they're still living with the implications of this. And they're wobbling in terms of how people feel about the culture at Google. And I just think this was an organization on top of it, Daniel, that emulated everything that you're talking about in terms of emotional intelligence and how is it possible that they could have fallen this way and made such a a decision made in their minds versus in their heart. Mark, I wonder whether they truly emulated it. You're describing the exact opposite and there's a real reputational cost to Google or any organization Mm. that treats people that way because those 12,000 people are going to talk about them. And I talked about their feelings and how they resent how they were handled. And it's not going to help Google hire talent going into the future. And by the way, when you have a leader, a manager who does not embody emotional intelligence, if you are talented, you're more likely to leave just the way the world operates. So if a company wants to retain its top talent, its best people, I think it should treat them well. And when I say well, I think about being emotionally intelligent. And Mark, as you know, and in what you've been doing for all these years, companies and top leaders and C-suite are very uneven in how they lead and how they got their job, for one thing. And they may or may not value this set of people skills. Do you see that changing? Not only within the current ranks of people who, let's just say, are in the C-suite, but also is there a generational shift that you see coming? Are the Gen Y or Gen Z more likely to be practitioners of emotional intelligence and to truly value people the way we're discussing? Mark, I think there are two trend lines there. I don't have exact data on them, but I have impressions. I have the feeling that ideas about emotional intelligence and leadership are spreading in the current crop of leaders and managers, but I think it's going to get stronger with Gen Y, Gen Z, because those generations 
look at work a little differently. They tend to want to have a balanced life instead of, you know, throwing themselves totally into their work. And I think that they generally are looking for a more humane working situation than has been true. I think older generations were more likely to put up with situations that weren't to their liking just to hold a job or get ahead. So from your point of view, because some leaders, there's a CEO that just came out who sent an email right around Christmas to his employees and said that they needed to work harder and that they were lazy and that they also needed to accept that their work lives should effectively dominate their personal lives and that they should be in a blend. So he's just raising the bar in terms of his expectations and essentially saying, you need to be working all the time if you're going to do a good work here. So that's one way of a CEO interpreting or rebelling against this idea of a balanced life that you're describing. What would you say to a CEO who thinks like that? I don't think that's a rebellion against a balanced life. I think that's adherence to an old traditional model of the workplace and of leadership. And I think that, for example, what you've been saying actually is quite opposite that. I believe your message is listen to people, care about them, show you care. You win loyalty, you motivate people, you inspire them better that way. Is that not right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would agree. We have actually good data showing that leaders who can inspire, who can speak from the heart to the heart, create the best emotional climate that, you know, positive engagement, people wanting to give their best because they feel that they're part of a larger mission that has meaning for them. And this is actually what motivates them over and above what they're making. The guy who says, if you want to keep your job, work harder, is just looking at the financial metrics, perhaps growth and profit. I don't know. But that is an old traditional model. What he's not looking at is are you hollowing out your organization? Are you creating a workplace where the best people will leave first? That's the question I would ask. That's fantastic. And I love this idea of hollowing out your organization because you said this earlier and you just punctuated it. But in my experience, when you have leadership that really isn't aligned to what human beings need in order to thrive. It is indeed the very best people who leave first because they believe in themselves. They don't go into fear and think, oh, no one else is going to employ me. Right. They think there's got to be a better environment than this. I also think, I'd be curious as to your take on this, Daniel. You know, we had 120 million American workers quit their jobs over the last, basically from January of 2021 through mid-year of 23. 120 million. That's an astonishing number to me. And I think it's people saying this is not the place for me and I'm going to go someplace that is. Have you given any thought to that? Well, I've never interviewed 120 million people. I'm sure there's a range of reasons for quitting. But sure. I think there is definitely a portion of people in that 120 million who are giving a hard look at their work experience, what it's like day to day. In the book Optimal, we describe data from Harvard Business School about what it's like to have a good day at work. And one of the elements is people feel engaged. They feel very satisfied and they do their best work. And if you don't feel that way at work and if you have other options, and I think the economy is giving people other options, you can leave. 
and people do. I want to talk to you about self-awareness. You emphasize this in your book, that it's so essential to emotional intelligence and effectiveness. And outside of the diagnostic that we were talking about earlier, what are some maybe uncommon ways that we can develop our self-awareness? Well, one of the important dimensions of self-awareness is, as the poet Robert Burns put it, seeing yourself as others see you. And I think that we can start right there. How do people who know me well see me, actually? Will people be candid? Or This is a question you can't ask a direct report, by the way, because they are <laughs> of their position. They don't tell you the truth if it's the harsh truth. However, a peer who knows you might be more willing, or a spouse or your family because, you know, the brain doesn't really distinguish much between work and the rest of life. You're probably the same way in other settings, too. And hearing about that might be hard to hear if you don't measure up to how you think other people see you. But that's important data, very important data. What about personal triggers? What situations tend to trigger most of us into suboptimal states? Well, there are some common workplace triggers. One is feeling you're being treated unfairly or not being listened to is another. Someone else taking credit for your work is still another. Feeling unfairly blamed. And, you know, workplaces can be toxic. These things can come up. And when they do, a lot of people get triggered. And when I say triggered, I mean really upset immediately. They get what we call hijacked. They're taken over by anger or by self-pity or by frustration or anxiety. And it's very destructive to their doing good work. Something else that you mention in your book that kind of relates to this in some respects because of the journey that Steve Jobs went through in terms of how he was perceived as a leader early on in his career and how he was at the end of his career. You mentioned the quote where he says, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. And I wondered how you've learned to tune into the feelings in your body as a gauge to what you and others are experiencing in any given moment. Like, how did you cultivate that personally? Well, Mark, I'm a meditator. Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, a daily tuning in meditation essentially Apart from the belief system it's encapsulated in, it's basically attention draining. And tuning into your feelings is a very basic part of meditation. The uh, neurologist Antonio Damasio calls this listening to your somatic markers. Somatic markers is a reference to signals your body is giving you about what feels good and what doesn't. So for me, that's led me as a writer to explore many different areas. I've written several books. This is my fifth book on emotional intelligence, but I've done five or six others on other areas that called to me. And I feel lucky to be able to explore whatever interests me and whatever my body tells me, hey, you know, this sings to you. And I think having a career where you feel aligned with that internal sense of what is meaningful is extremely important because it means you'll be more satisfied. I'm in complete agreement with you, by the way. Antonio Damasio was at the Salk Institute, which is in La Jolla, where I live, not too far from where I am when he actually wrote that book. I think he was referencing Descartes' error. Yeah, you know, 
Dimashio is an interesting guy because he likes to frame whatever neurological insight he's writing about in terms of philosophy. So yes, he, t- he called it Descartes' error. The book <laughs> talks about somatic markers, essentially. But I'm impressed I shouldn't be, but I am, because it's Daniel Goldman that I'm talking to. So in other words, that you have perfected this, or at least to the extent that one is capable of perfecting it, this idea of allowing somatic markers, your intuition, your inner knowing to influence your behavior. I'm impressed by it, but I'm also wondering, like, where do you rank that in terms of a leadership skill? You know, when it comes, this is from Damasio, actually. If you want to make a good decision, he says, get all the data you can, gather the facts, but listen to your somatic markers because that's important data too. So, for example, there may be a business deal you're contemplating with someone else, and it looks good on paper, but can you trust these people? That's not a question you can answer by data you're going to get an intuitive sense of that. And he says you need to listen to that too. I agree with him. I think it's both. When when USC, I forget who did it, but someone at USC did a study of California entrepreneurs who built a business from nothing to huge. How do you make your business decisions? And they all said essentially the same thing. They gather data voraciously, even wider than most people would in their cognitive net. But then they check it against their gut feeling. If it doesn't feel right, they might not go ahead with the deal. I'm not familiar with the school specifically, but it's like the University of Graduate Studies in Australia that did something like that. I'm sorry that I can't give the exact name, but they did the exact same study where they were studying entrepreneurs and they found out what differentiated them was that they were trusting their intuition. But I also think Daniel Kahneman at the end of Thinking Fast and Slow sort of said, you know, we can't explain this, but what we recommend you do is to run your data, do your analysis as deeply as possible, be as rigorous as you possibly can from that standpoint, and then ask yourself, how does this decision feel? And I find that just like a remarkable thing from somebody like him. Well, Danny Kahneman got a Nobel Prize. What can I say? <laughs> Touche. All right, let's talk about your book a little bit more. The word optimal, as in optimal performance, is a term this audience is very familiar with. And we also believe that all human beings thrive and therefore perform optimally when they routinely experience positive emotions. Has your research helped confirm this? And if so, what are ways you found that workplace leaders can ensure their people are supported to perform optimally? So I base my sense of an optimal workplace performance on this study that was done at Harvard Business School. They had about 12,000 daily journals people kept, what I did today, how I felt, and so on. And what they found was that, yes, a highly productive day went with feeling good, positive mood. Those two are highly correlated. And think about it, the way the brain is arranged, if you're in a downer mood, if you're angry, if you're anxious, if you're frustrated, whatever, it narrows your scope. You can't take in information as well, you can't process it as deeply, and you can't respond as nimbly. You fall back on, you know, overlearned responses, you 
you just can't do as well. You're not as creative. And in fact, the positive mood also went with creativity, solving the daily problem that leads you further toward a big goal that you have. So I think, yes, Mark, you're absolutely right. So, Daniel, how can workplace leaders, people that are listening to this, be more thoughtful about creating the feelings that lead to optimal performance? Well, for example, a friend of mine was consulting at a major hospital, actually I'll say MD Anderson, number one cancer treatment center in America, I think in the world. And someone there said, you know, when we start a meeting, I try to remind people of the great mission we have, which is helping people heal, rather than asking them about their numbers. If you start with the numbers, then people get defensive. If you start about the mission, what's meaningful here, you open people up, you inspire them. And inspiring leadership, our data shows, is the very best way to create the kind of climate that makes people more likely to have that optimal day where they're engaged, where they're most productive, where they're most creative, where they're most connected, and when they feel the best and the most satisfied. Did this person have just an extraordinary understanding of emotional intelligence? Because we've all been, I'm sure you've been in meetings with business leaders where the impulse to say, let's talk about our mission instead of the numbers is a very high hurdle for a lot of people. Well, Mark, I think I said before, very individual, but people who understand that as a leader, one of my first tasks is to inspire people, to help them feel the mission that moves me, that that's going to get the best result. And we actually have some data on that where we find that a leader, for example, who is hypercritical, who only talks about failings and not successes, makes people very defensive. There's a very good brain scan study done by Richard Boyatzis and other folks at Case Western, where they found that if you're getting a performance review and they only talk about what you did wrong, not what you did right, they don't celebrate the things you do well, but focus on where you need to improve, people get very defensive. It closes them down, just in terms of how your brain circuitry is operating. But if if you get performance review that talks about the good things you did, it'll include what you could improve, but it talks about it in a positive frame. It has quite the opposite effect at the brain level. It opens people up. It means that they can think better, that they can perform better. Wonderful. Let's talk about empathy because you say it's the most important leadership skill. And so I want to know, why do you believe this? And do all leaders have it in them? Like, is it innate or is it something learned? And then finally, where does compassion fit into the mix? Well, remember I said there are three kinds of empathy, knowing how people think, but then how they feel. These seem to be based in different parts of the brain, by the way. And then there is caring about them which is interestingly based in the mammalian caretaking circuitry. It's a parent's love for a child. It uses the same circuits, but in the workplace, it means that I'm a leader who not only knows how you think and feel, but I want what's best for you because I know in the long run, it's going to be best for all of us. I understand that you're feeling 
you can trust me, that you feel I might coach you or mentor you or help you develop skills that help you go where you want to go, that's going to get the best effort out of you. And I think those are leaders who are mostly intelligent, and it starts with having that kind of empathy. And compassion, where does that come in? I think you could say that concern is a a kind of everyday form of compassion. Compassion just means helping a person, caring about a person, wanting what's best for them. So when I say concern or caring, I think it's on the very same dimension as compassion. Okay, very good. Everyone, I'd like to do something that I very rarely do on this podcast, which is to promote something. But I want to make a quick announcement before we return to our conversation with Daniel Goleman. Several times after speaking in organizations, I've been asked to create a training course that could teach managers how to specifically lead with a greater balance of mind and heart. In other words, Organizations have heard me speak and then say, hey, can we teach our managers this? And I had nothing to give them. But I finally teamed up with Get Lighthouse, which is one of the premier management training companies. And we produced a step-by-step guide to putting all the principles that we talk about in this podcast into practice. And I hope you'll trust me when I say that we actually created something pretty amazing and wonderful, and it's also truly affordable. It's an online course you can use to teach all the leaders in your group, department, or company to become effective heart-centered leaders. After a highly successful pilot run in the fall, we're now opening up our availability for a limited number of organizations and groups that want to transform their leaders in 2024. So if you'd like to learn more, please go to my website, markccrowley.com backslash course to sign up for a free call with me to talk about your needs, how it works, and how it can make your team the next great success story. By the way, we surveyed everyone who participated in the pilot, and I'll share two quick testimonials. A section lead manager at biotech leader Roche said, quote, the course was the perfect mixture of simplicity, insights, guidance, and expertise at the perfect dosage. And a manager from financial services said, quote, I have enrolled in other leadership programs, and this one stood out as the most helpful and actionable in helping me navigate the unique challenges of leadership roles. The moment couldn't be better for you to further develop your team, and I look forward to the opportunity to meet with you to discuss how we can help. Thank you for listening. Daniel, we're going to stop here for a quick departure from our conversation and move into a podcast tradition that we call the Heartbeat Round, very cleverly. To help us learn more about you personally, I'm going to ask you about a dozen questions that we ideally want you to answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you willing to play? Sure, let's do it. All right. At best, IQ determines what percentage of life success When you're in school, it's 90% to 100%. When you're in life, it's less and less and less, particularly over the course of your career. Cultural value every organization should have. Empathy. A leader of any era you hold in the highest regard. Dalai Lama. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Listen. Listen well. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. More and more younger generations are going to look for products, services, and workplaces that are truly doing something to lessen their footprint and to harm the environment less. This will matter uh, in the marketplace and the workplace. Quality you consider most essential to your personal success. Curiosity. 
one book you believe everyone should read. Mm. Uh, I recommend A Force for Good. It's my book. A common leadership practice that does more harm than good. Looking only at the numbers and not at the people. If you had a theme song, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> I a theme I've never asked anybody this question, so you've got to give me a good answer. Oh, yeah? oh, yeah. Happy days are here again. All right. Very good. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Uh, go on a retreat. What kind of a retreat? A silent retreat. Tell me more. Be with yourself for a sustained number of days. You can do it in meditation. You can do it in nature. You can do it any way you want. The most important lesson you took from the two-year COVID experience? Solitude can be wonderful. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? A lack of emotional intelligence. I wish I had the plug bell to ring for that. That's great. <laughs> and then finally, your best synonym for the word heart? Empathy. You did great with these. Very concise. So not everybody can do that. So thank you for going through that with me. Let me change roles here sure. and say, what haven't we discussed in your book that you really want to emphasize? And also maybe broaden this to say, when I wrote Emotional Intelligence in 1995, what's the big learning that influenced you to write Optimal? Well, several things came together when we wrote Optimal. I didn't do it alone. One was the data on people having a good day. We start the book there. And then we realized that, hey, emotional intelligence is likely to help someone have this more often. And then we stepped back and we looked at what makes an organization have a culture that supports this that supports people having a good day rather than a stressful day where they do what the boss wants them to do. They get the numbers, but my God, they're sending out the resume because they can't stand it here. That's what you don't want. And there are some key points that we found that mark organizations and mark companies that have a more emotionally intelligent culture. One is that there's someone on the business side who champions this, who says this matters. For example, that Progressive, used to be Progressive Insurance, now it's just Progressive. The guy who was in charge of customer relations, the agents who sold the insurance to their customers, was an advocate of emotional intelligence. He said so often to his people. And this is very important. Then HR can come up and have an effective way of getting better at it. So I think those two go hand in hand. As I told you before, I don't really recommend trying to hire people for these abilities because it's very hard to get good data for that, but rather to make it important in terms of people's performance review, not just mm. to get your numbers. How did you get those numbers? You know, did you terrify people? Did you pressure the hell out of them? Did you stress them out? Or did you inspire them? Did you help them feel that this is a mission I want to give my best for? Uh, that's the best way to do it. And so I think it's a combination of saying that this matters, helping people get better at it if they want, if they're motivated and motivating them, and then showing that it matters day to day in how you do. So one last question on this. What advice would you give to organizations and maybe HR leaders? How can they best identify the managers in their organizations that 
are frightening or terrifying their people or managing with fear and intimidation, anything that's toxic that undermines optimal performance, how do we identify them in organizations? Well, probably the strongest data is turnover. People tend to leave bosses they hate, and HR can get numbers for turnover. If you do an anonymous questionnaire about how do you feel working here, that's another source of that kind of data because toxic bosses are going to do poorly if people can report honestly and anonymously how they feel. So, you know, those are two places. But, you know, I think it's more than identifying toxic managers. I'd also recommend motivating people to get better whether they're toxic or not toxic, everyone has a profile of strengths and limits and knowing what your limits are and that there is a way here at this organization to improve on that is very, very important, very helpful. Wonderful. Daniel Goldman, as I'm listening to you, the things that just keep striking me is how gracious you are, how thoughtful you are, how concise and knowledgeable you are, and you clearly have a heart for people and want the best in people. And so I commend you because I'm absolutely certain my audience is feeling the same thing from you. So thank you so very much for joining us and best of success with your book. Mark, you're super kind. I appreciate all of the remarks that you made. And I think it's actually mutual. I think you understand this yourself. And I want to thank you for everything you do. Um, I'm honored by that. Best to you, sir. Okay, and you. Take care. Thank you. Just as punctuation for our discussion with Daniel Goldman about empathy, I recently heard a professor from a prestigious U.S. business school discuss empathy in leadership. And he quoted a top CEO who told him that empathy must always be accompanied by winning. And when I heard this advice, I really bristled. And here's why. There are moments in all of our lives when expressions or demonstrations of empathy fortify us whether we're dealing with a personal loss, a setback, or a very difficult situation, having someone express their concern or offer us support uplifts us, just as long as it's genuine and heartfelt. So when I hear someone advise that empathy must be accompanied by winning, my take is that they must erroneously believe that empathy is inherently weak and could undermine employee productivity. So they construct a hedge empathy with a qualifier that whatever one's going through is no excuse to stop producing. The way I see it is that qualified empathy is no empathy at all. And the wisest of leaders realize that displays of empathy in the appropriate moments are actually catalysts for performance. We all want to do our best work for leaders who make us feel valued and important to them. Consequently, empathy can't come with any caveats for its impact to truly land. As we close, I'd like to ask you to please recommend our podcast to a friend or colleague and help us further expand our audience. I'm also a professional keynote speaker and would love to come share the lead from the heart philosophy at your organization, wherever you are in the world. I wanna thank and applaud my team, including Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And I wanna thank Chevron, all of its leaders around the world, and especially CHRO, Rhonda Morris, for believing so strongly in our mission. 
And finally, great thanks go to you for listening. We produce this show with love for you and hope you'll keep turning in. Our theme song is Take the A Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn that was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra of that era. Our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening and signing off for now. 